I think I'd rather die in nuclear war than go to Olympia. <laughs> Penn State was in the Atlantic <laughs> Tired. Mark Whipple was a bad coach at UMass. Wired. Charlie Molnar was a bad coach at UMass. Inspired. <laughs> Kevin Morris was a bad coach at UMass. <laughs> hey, what's up? Curry Hicks Sage here. Bennett had asked me like two weeks ago after I cut this Spaces episode to cut an intro, and I never did, so... And then it took me another two weeks to actually cut this all together. My wife and one of my kids are out. My other kid's taking a nap, and it just dawned on me. So I think I kind of introduced it in the in the show that he recorded, and I should note that it got cut off when Bennett had to take off, and there was some funny stuff after. But pretty much what you're about to listen to is a Twitter Spaces conversation with former UMass All-American tight end Adam Brenneman, who started his career at Penn State. Conversation started because he and I had a little back and forth, respectful exchange, disagreement, but all in good faith, no no hard, no hard feelings. Um, some weeks back about NIL stuff. And so we kind of just said, let's hash it out on a spaces. Because we told everyone that it was going to be on spaces, I think, um, or that we we're going to record it, I think fewer people attended the actual spaces than a normal episode. So this is what you're about to listen to. Um, pretty free-flowing, a lot of fun, brought to you by the fine folks at Five College Movers, world-class, stress-free, moving in the Pioneer Valley and beyond. Call Pat and the gang. Please do tell them that we sent you. Um, friends of UMass Athletics, friends of UMass uh, Twitter, really. Friends of friends of the pod. So without further ado, Bennett, give the folks what they, what they want to hear. And oh, one, one last thing. The truth is, as I think back on this episode, oh, and first of all, by the way, some of you I realize don't know what Twitter spaces are. It's basically a new medium. It's probably been around a year. We've been doing it a while, for a while. We did the whole coaches search on there. We did the last episode of the podcast on there. And basically, it's a live audio platform where you can incorporate people in. So we've kind of migrated over there, but I still want to post pods. Also... Please let me know who you want to hear this summer on the pod. I still want to get David Jacoby, who grew up in Amherst, ESPN personality. We've kind of exchanged some DMs over the years, but we can never nail him down. Uh, if you have a contact for him, hit me up. We do want to get Frank Martin eventually. I've had a little bit of trouble getting that. Um, I think the school is a little resistant, but whatever. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. We, I do want to get Luke Bonner. Um... I don't know. Other people, too. So here's the show. Enjoy it. And uh, we'll be back soon. Have a great summer. Trying to pay dues, deliver the news. Like you, mass, we refuse to lose. Rhymes and booze, the life we choose. Fight with the mic till our tongue gets So for folks who have not been longtime Spaces listeners, there's still probably a smattering of our fan base that does not realize that most of our content these days comes in the form of Twitter Spaces, which is a live audio platform on Twitter. And the show is being recorded tonight. The Spaces is being recorded tonight by Bennett. So this will be a podcast episode as well. I noticed that in our last recorded Spaces, <laughs> Bennett was 
uh, just dropped the episode without any context from me. It was the it was the big night, and Adam Brenneman, our guest tonight, is joining us now. So Adam, I'm just going over the the, the ground rules here because we're we are recording this as for a pod as well. Um, but the last time we recorded for a pod, our uh, elite producer Bennett did not note anywhere that it was that it was a spaces. So it just jumps in, and it's me ranting about the college, the men's basketball coaching search. And then, um, and then, so anybody who does not listen to Spaces but still gets our podcast must have been really confused because I don't even think we we I think we threw in the intro and then it just it just kind of jumped right in. But be that as you may, folks are joining us in real time. Know that you are being recorded tonight. Uh, some serious NSA shit, and this will be a podcast episode as well, which I shouldn't have told you because now. Some people are going to jump off, and our numbers are going to go down. Um, I'm going to add Adam Brenneman. So without further ado, tonight's guest, I'm just going to give everybody the context for those who may have missed it online. Tonight's guest is former Penn State and UMass tight end and college football All-American Adam Brenneman. Adam played at UMass for two years um, and has done an assortment of things since some of which we'll probably discuss at some point, some of which we won't. Um, he's uh, something of a renaissance man of a sort uh, who has managed campaigns and gotten into, I think he's in real estate now, but also uh, spent some time in coaching uh, at Arizona State and maybe elsewhere. I'll have, I'll have him fill in the details. There's been instances of political disagreement uh, on Twitter between he and I, kind of, but I don't really want to get too down that rabbit hole tonight because the thrust of the conversation tonight is, and, and he's graciously agreed to join us, is about a thread that he put together uh, probably six or seven days ago on NIL stuff in college football in particular, and that I took issue with, but as anybody who knows me knows the, when I take issue with something and it's reasonably argued and it's not, you know, personalized, I, I, I just tell you I disagree with it and let's discuss it. And Adam, um, being someone who's like under 40 and doesn't, and understands the internet, uh, excuse me, and understands the internet, that's my alarm that was for, I don't know what that was for, um, and understands the internet, I think just got it intuitively and was like, yeah, let's talk about it. And we probably won't even disagree as much as maybe we initially thought we did. And so I appreciated that. We set up tonight. Happy Mother's Day, everyone. We're recording this on Sunday, May 8th. Um, happy Mother's Day to, to all. And whatever you did today, I hope it was meaningful and good. I actually am celebrating Mother's Day. Next weekend, because one of my kids has COVID, and the other we decided to potty train because we were stuck at home. So it was a highly, um, I don't want to say uneventful, because we had a kid defecating on the floor all day, but it was an underwhelming uh, celebration, you could say. So <laughs> without further ado, Adam, what's up? Thanks for coming on. What's up, man? Appreciate you having me on. I'm excited to uh, to chat it up and appreciate all the uh, all the people joining so far. Looks like we got some UMass people in here, of course. Yeah, so share it with I'm your to share it with your your orbit because I think this one and, yeah. and just so you know, we we tend to I would say 
like the 15, 20 minute mark is where we start seeing a, a greater influx of people and, and it'll, it'll grow. But Bennett basically told people we're recording it. So now I feel like people are watching whatever they're watching on their Sunday night. Um, but yeah, so the impetus, as I said, was, you, you know, there's been a lot of talk um, about NIL. I'm more tuned in to some of the basketball side because I'm kind of a basketball first dude, but I do, I do follow the football circuit as well, which has been even crazier. And I'll let you just kind of explain your, your thread, like what prompted it and, um, and kind of what was your overall posture, your position on this in general? Yeah, um, I, I, I've been, you know, this obviously has been a topic for a while, NIL, players getting paid. I remember, man, being like in a, in a freaking high school, like writing papers on why college athletes should get paid. So, you know, it's, it's been something that everyone's talked about for a long time. Um, and I, I've been a proponent pretty, pretty openly about a proponent of NIL, a proponent of players getting paid somehow. You know, I've, I've often said and believed um, that, you know, if, if, if college football and we'll, and I'm going to speak to football, I don't know the basketball landscape as well, but very similar, obviously when it comes to the NIL space. Um, but when, when, uh, when, when it's a business for the school and a business for the coaches and a business for the administrators and a business for this media companies and the media personalities and the sponsored sponsorships, then it should be a business for the players too. Um, and I, I've been a believer in that for a while. I mean, I look back to my career and, you know, I'm someone who had a really successful college football career but didn't play in the NFL, you know, because of very various factors, but mostly because of my knee. And if I would have had NIL, you know, and that would have helped a lot. So I, I've been a big proponent of it for a while. I think the issue that um, – or at least my concern with NIL, and I, it really stemmed from a lot of conversation about, you know, really the, the Jordan Addison situation started it. You know, obviously Jordan Addison and the rumors around USC and possible NIL deals that were on the table uh, for him and obviously a lot of talk then. And, and I think the, the what really prompted my tweet was I, I was seeing a lot of people say, you know, well, if, if that's what businesses are willing to pay him, if that's what the market's willing to pay him, then, then you know, that that's, that's good. And my, and my point with the threat is that what we're seeing now happen in college football and – and uh, um, college basketball, uh, on some instances, I'm sure, is is not really NIL anymore. It's just pay for play, and that NIL, when 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 you're talking about NIL, that that refers to like athletes being able to do endorsement deals. You know, examples: the quarterback doing a deal for a car dealership, or the offensive lineman doing a steak deal. You know, we saw a lot of cool things all over the country. A lot of guys made a lot of money, um, and I'm all for that. I mean, I think that's awesome. I think what, what, but what we're seeing for if if some of the reports are true, and you're seeing guys, you know, get convinced to enter the transfer portal because a collective wants to donate three million dollars, wants to give the player three million dollars. That's no longer nil, and that's just pay for play. And those, and, and my point was that those athletes. Um, aren't actually worth that in marketing value to a company or to a business. Um, you know, I have tons of guys, play, uh, friends that play in the NFL. Some are stars in the NFL, and they complain all the time about how they can't, how they don't make much money in marketing deals. They're always firing their agents and getting new agents because they want to make more money in brand deals. And that's because that, you know, they're getting actual real value because they're not trying to get brought, you know, no, no company is trying to bribe them to go to one team or another. It's just purely what they're worth to a school. And no player – uh, is actually worth four million dollars to a to a um, to a company 
uh, you know, in, in, in market value. And then that, and that was kind of where, where the, where the thread came from. And then it obviously it turned into a lot of people disagreeing with me as far as what, how do you, how do you, how do you define the market? What does market value mean? And I think really to come back to like what my main point was is that NIL is good for college football. I think I, I, I'm all for it. I support it. I think what's, what's bad is when it turns into pay for play and bribery. And when you combine NIL with the transfer portal and one-time transfer waiver and all of that together with recruiting, that that combination with no regulation can create some bad things that aren't good for the sport when, you, when you're talking about, you know, guys being um, paid to transfer schools to, to – to enter the portal when it comes into recruiting. Um, I don't think that's good for the sport. I don't think it's good for the players. And I don't think that's what NIL was intended to be when it, when it, uh, you know, when, when it came into effect. So a lot of, a lot of points and on the merits, I don't really disagree with your core. So, I mean, I think my, my read on this whole thing, cause I think you, I just want to like sort of put my cards on the table and cause it's not, it's, and it's, and unfortunately it's not a totally cut and dry thing. There's a lot of subtlety yeah. and nuance to this, and I think you and I probably both agree. And so, when NIL came out, I think it was kind of this ambiguous thing where it was like, okay, well, we we got it was a recognition that like, yeah, we gotta like basically allow players to at least at the very least benefit off their name, image, and likeness. I mean, let's just like do the kind of glossary of terms first and foremost. It's your name, image, and likeness, right? And so, as you said, there's a wide range of kind of, um, you know, endorsement deals and a lot of like a lot of fairly small time stuff, um, you know, local restaurants and car dealerships and dental offices. And in exchange for, you know, an endorsement or, or whatever, they, that's that's kind of where it went down. Flash forward to this off season when combined with changes to transfer laws and coupled with the fact that there really wasn't my understanding at least and I, ha- I haven't like read all of the NCAA bylaws or whatever but there was a lot of ambiguity around like what this was going to look like and precisely how it was going to get implemented and there really wasn't um, clarity from a from like a legal framework perspective and so what happened when you combined it with the fact that you didn't have to sit out tra- for a transfer year is it um, just players became free agents essentially and boosters or collectives of boosters either directly or indirectly be and by the way feel free to correct me when i when i'm done if i'm getting some of the sort of hyper specific stuff wrong but basically boosters or collective of boosters collectives of boosters either directly or indirectly um kind of were luring players at whatever rates that they thought they could get them at or that the player sometimes through agents uh, was saying that they were, you know, seeking essentially. And they were doing it under the guise of this broad NIL schema. Right. Um, But, but, uh, but ultimately they were, it, it, it was, as you're saying, it was, it was acquisition, right. It was, it was acquiring players to, so, that is is that first of all is that like a do you think just characterizing it right you've been more in the weeds on this probably than I have do you think that's uh, an accurate like description just factually? Yeah, hundred percent. I think I think like you said it it uh, started off as like the, the just you know the the normal deals car dealerships stuff like that and then the collectives came into play which a lot of the time are 
these uh, a lot of them are registered as nonprofits that are really raising money through different various channels of boosters some some raise money from some have like programs where fans can give like twenty dollars a month to go to the collective and then the collective can then go execute these agreements to pay um, the players so yeah you're, you're you're spot on with that yeah and full disclosure i i would as i've told listeners like i i've actually been contacted and I'm, I've been sort of meaning to set up a meeting with by a startup that is kind of in this space and has their, I have no, it's just like through a friend of a friend. I, I think I will probably ask the guy for equity. Who knows? I mean, if I can get anything out of it. <laughs> <You should. laughs> but, but my point is I'm familiar with a little bit of this in, in even new creative ways they're trying to do it um, through through some people because of just the audience on the show and like they're, they're seeking counsel on, not not legal counsel, but they're seeking counsel on how, you know, this fan base functions and whatever. So I, sh- I should note that. But um, I think my my issue, and it's maybe it's not directly with, you know, it's like with, with your point, um, is that once you open up Pandora's box and you don't put in sort of clear-cut rules about precisely how to do this, my whole thing is, and I'm honestly asking you, does it really matter if a kid's getting money from the local Chevy dealer or if a kid's getting money from, you know, a shadowy collective of boosters who just, for whatever reason, they, they think that they want that, that they want a certain kid and they're willing to pay a certain amount of money. Me, I'm like, go for it, kid. Like, you, you know, I think about your career yeah. and, you know, you were a kid from central Pennsylvania who was, you know, sort of the biggest signing at Penn State in the kind of post-Paterno scandal era, a major signing for – it was Bill O'Brien, I presume, at the time, right? Yep, yeah. And, and you know, if this was in, in place at that time, you know, your, your signing meant a great deal for that program in terms of its, like, next chapter and moving forward from its – the scandal and everything. We don't have to relitigate your, your recruitment. But I just think, like – if a group of people came to you a decade ago, or whenever, well, not not quite a decade, around a decade ago, has it been that long? No. Yeah, you're making me feel pretty old now, man. Yeah, about um, a decade. Well, <laughs> maybe eight, nine years ago. If they come to you and been like, "Hey, hey, you know, um, we'll we'll find you, you know, 1.5 million or something, right?" And yeah. meanwhile, your other suitors were, I, I don't, you know, I know you were recruited sort of all over the place, and they came to you and said. Well, you know, we can only give you seven fifty or whatever. <laughs> like, I don't quite understand what. And, and by the way, like, let's say they said it. Hey, once because I know there are some rules about exactly how it goes down. Once you sign, you know, you got you kind of got a back channel information. Let's say that said once you sign, you got to do a, uh, you know, an ad for the local Chevy dealer, and we'll give you one point five. Yeah, like no yeah. shit, it's not worth it to that local Chevy dealer. But if if they're willing to pay and make what is essentially a bad business decision, right? Right? Like Adam Brenneman's not going to sell two million in cars, which is kind of what you were saying earlier about you know the market value. Like, what's the difference? They're they're still just going to pay you to for whatever the fuck they want. Yeah. No, I I agree. I, I think I think. And I'll say this, like, if I'm Jordan Addison right now, like, I'm doing the same exact thing he's doing because, like, it's allowed to happen. You know, like, I'm, I would be – I don't blame him at all for taking advantage of 
you know, all these players should be increasing their bidding, you know, the bidding right now while it's in place, you know, with the with no regulation and, and things like that. I think I think the difference really in what we're talking about is one is it one is and is what NIL is intended to be doing marketing deals, and the other is is pay for play. Like and, and there and and I think that's kind of I saw a tweet actually after I had tweeted that, and really it was saying like Adam, what you're describing is NIL versus pay for play. Like you know, pay for play is not NIL, although it's getting disguised as. NIL under the under the rules um you know it's really you know like like you said when, when a car dealership is when it's funneled through a car dealership to do a, a, a ad but really they're just trying to get the guy to go to the school that's that's not really nil um although it is it's disguised as that under under the current rules i think that's like the 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 you know the disagreement where like uh, and again, I don't fault the guys for not doing that right now. Like I was, uh, Sean Clifford's a good buddy of mine, the quarterback at Penn State, and he started an NIL agency. And, um, uh, you know, and, and I was talking to him about this, and we we kind of, you know, he he kind of said the same thing that you did about my tweet, and we had a long conversation about it after that. And uh, like I was I was telling him, man, like you should be trying to get every dollar you can right now while this thing's not regulated. But really, I think it's a great example of the NCAA and and. You know, this is just a great, a great, you know, example of the NCA botching things. You know, they just let this come out, you know, with no plan whatsoever. Um, you know, at the same time that the transfer, you know, the one, the, the being able to transfer and not sit out, the transfer portal, all of it kind of happened at once. And, and of course, what happens is you have people taking advantage of the rules and, and uh, you know, trying to use it in recruiting to pay you know 1.5 million or whatever it is to get a guy to go to go to the school and, and i do i understand your point completely like if they're willing to pay that then that's then then, they, then that is the market and i agree I, I that is the market if they're willing to, to pay it and obviously there are fans and boosters that don't care about a return and just want their team to be good and i understand that i think that it's it's it, it, in my opinion that the pay for play part of it is bad for the sport and it's bad for college football, and it's, it's it's not sustainable at the end of the day with the amount of money getting thrown around. Like the market's going to correct at some point. Oh, and, 100%. Yeah, yeah. And, and you even you even look at like you know the leagues that have salary caps. Like a lot of a lot of leagues and industries have these regulation or these things in effect that don't allow this to happen because it's bad for the for the industry. Or it's bad for the sport. So I, I that that's where I'm coming from is like nil versus pay for play. And again, if 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 there's a real deal, you know, you look at another example was. You know, a guy who does who who stays at his current school, but uh, versus the guy who transfers. The guy who transfers, his market value goes way up. And I understand that you know your value always goes up when you're on the open market. But you know, the difference between Kenny Pickett making a hundred grand and Jordan Addison making three million, um, because because Jordan Addison's getting you know uh, bribed to transfer schools. It, it's just that that's no longer just a guy doing an endorsement deal. That that's actually that's actually pay-for-play so i guess that, well, that's so, just kind of so, the, the, so i guess my, my thing is like first of all i i think and and maybe some of the lawyers on here could could weigh in but i think a lot of the uh the nil sort of what what little there what what there has been in terms of a regulatory environment of, of what this is some of this was the nca's hand was forced through because of court cases i believe yep. Yeah. So they had to kind of. I mean, it's always easy to, to, to slam the NCAA, and Lord knows I do it. But this had to get, like, partly this came about because because of the court cases, the NCAA's hand was forced, and they weren't really ready. And so there was a hastily strewn about, like, you know, little couple rules, whatever it is, you know, whatever's whatever's guiding this. It's it's un, unclear because it just happened really quickly. But what I'll say is. 
like using kind of like using your own logic. If if we said so, I I understand the distinction and between pay for play and nil. Even though I mean it's kind of like nil is basically paid because you play as opposed to pay to play, right? But well, let's say we did it like the way they do it in minor league baseball, where you're really getting a big signing bonus, right? Because they don't know if you're going to pan out. And so if you're even first, second, third rounders often don't make the, the league, but they'll get anywhere from, you know, 500,000 to 3 million or whatever in a signing bonus. And then once they get to the minors, you know, they're making very little until they get to the majors. What if we allowed kids, like we, we created a separate, and I'm just thinking out loud here, we created essentially a separate, regulatory framework or schema, right, right, to um, allow kids to get whatever they want as a signing bonus from collectives, from wherever they were to get it. Um, and then, like, it's a one-time shot, you, you know, or, or, you know, if you want to do it the next year, like, that, that could be debated. You know, you could maybe change the transfer rule again to dissuade it. Like, whatever the – but, like, basically what I'm saying is – if it was, if there was some transparency around the, the signing process, right, and 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 it wasn't like, right, it was just like, yeah, like highest bidder, whatever. Is that would you still have an issue with that because it would still be pay for play, but at least it would be like made clear as a different as a, as a different like funnel of of revenue essentially. Um. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I don't know if I'm following exactly the the like, example. I guess what you're... I'm trying to say is like, you know, what's the difference here? Like, I understand. Yes, it is pay for play. If you just designated, okay, you get a signing bonus. See, see. Actually, let me step back because I think one of the things where we're talking over each other here is one of the challenges is that unlike professional franchises, and I've said this a bunch in the context of coaches, what you're dealing with here is, you know, in most in most environments most labor environments you have man you have you have ownership and you have you have labor right you have mm-hmm. you, you know we don't need to do like intro econ but it's like you have capital you have people who own who own in the in, and the problem here and that's the case of you know the miami dolphins or the new england patriots they're the the bob Kraft or stephen ross or whatever they own the team and then they pay the players right and there are some rules around that in the ncaa the challenge to me i think and why it's harder for people like you and I to find full agreement, and frankly, anyone to find full agreement, is that you don't really have owners. Colleges are yeah. not, you know, they're they're kind of like they're they're not. I mean, athletic departments are not businesses per se. I mean, they they, they kind of are in that they generate revenue, but they're um, they're not like private entities in the same. You know, they're, they're, that's and to me, I think all of the trickiness here gets to the fact that they're not the ones paying the kids, right? So and and so you have basically rogue um, ownership in this case, in the form of independent sponsors and boosters who are loosely affiliated with the school, but they're just dudes who want to win. It's a funny dynamic, right? Because as a result. There's really no way to even know who's being offered what because uh-huh. it's not actually being offered by the school itself. Um, and I think maybe that's why it like you, you get what I'm getting at. Yeah, I think I think really the the major issue with it is where like like what you just said, where it comes in with with the 
persuasion part of it and that and that it, it, that there's a lack of transparency and there's a lack of um like like no I, I, I guess, you know, and I, again, as I said before. Well, you're not negotiating with one party, right? Correct, because, yeah. Right, because if you were if you were a kid and, and a school had a, essentially a budget to pay recruits, mm-hmm. I think, I mean, at least I, I would assume you'd be probably okay with that because it's Oh, like, I'd love it, yeah. Yeah, because the school could just go out and say, um, hey, you know, and, and the school, and maybe even almost a salary cap, like, you could you could cap it to a certain certain degree or not. You just like Alabama has a hundred million to play with, and UMass has a million, which would not be good for UMass, but like it is what it is. <laughs> Let's just you know, and at least at that point, you know, there's deadlines. It's like you know, Saban sits down in front of the kid and he's like, okay, I'll give you two million, and he's like, well, I'm getting two point two from South Carolina. And he's like, it's my final offer. Take it or leave it. And the kid at that point. Like, would you be okay with a regime like that where it's 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 tons of money, kids getting paid to sign, but it's mediated through the schools themselves? Yeah, no, I, I think exactly. Yes, um, I'd be good with that. I want the players to get paid. I think I think that the issue I have with it is when it comes is when the uh, is when when kids are getting induced to, to to jump in the transfer portal to transfer from one school to another or to go to a certain school out of college because the donors, you know, through a, a collective are are offering them a certain amount of uh, a certain amount of money that that is just uh again, going back to the pay for play, that is pay for play and not an IL. Where you look at the NFL, you know, that which we you know, comparing to like kinda of doing something like that. Like the difference there, as you said with with colleges, the NFL Number one is a salary cap. Number two, those are private businesses. Those owners are, are trying to – they have a bottom line at the end of the day. They're, they're obviously, like, they, they have businesses to run. Um, kind they, of. They, but a lot, they, of, a lot of – but we, as you know, like, a lot of owners just, like, are billionaires who don't really give a shit, and they'll happily lose money to win a Super Bowl. So it's not yeah, – well, I, I, Kind of. But, I, I, I mean, I look at the Arizona Cardinals, and, you know, there's a reason that college football facilities are ridiculously nice because there's no, there's no bottom line. They're spending whatever they have to. They can raise money through, through boosters. You look at the Arizona Cardinals facility. That thing is like that thing hasn't been updated in 30 years. UMass has a better facility than they do. So things like that, where like that's often the case in the NFL. Now again, that that goes into you know that's also because of recruiting. Um, but again, is is that's the reason that and that that the current structure of it doesn't work because in the NFL there is no recruiting. In the NFL there, there's a salary cap. In the NFL you have owners. Um, it's all funneling through one place. In college football, it's completely different. You have you, there, there's no one like you said, no one who's really in charge. No, like you don't know, like there's no bottom line to be met. Um, and the, and there's no and, and there's uh and with 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 the players getting paid now it's just happening through these outside entities that you have no idea who's actually doing it. And then I don't know if you saw like yesterday the NCA said that they're now gonna retroactively penalize schools whose boosters had been involved in some of these shady NIL deals. Um, so it's just a, it's just a disaster. I mean, there's a lot of, there's, in my, in my opinion, it's not sustainable for the sport to have these kinds of, um, you know, these things going on behind the scenes uh, with players tampering going on in the transfer portal and bribing kids to go from one school to another for this insane amount of money. Um while it's you know if 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 we're going to pay the players let's pay the players the right way or if we're going to do nil do nil but you got to take the part of it where it's where it's the inducement or the pay for play out of it and and really i think you know i don't know i I don't nil is not going anywhere and i think we can all agree on that like players are going to be able to get paid um 
through through endorsement deals and, and things like that. I think possibly like part of the solution could come from the other side of the fence where like the tra- they figured out the whole transfer thing, figuring out, you know, how do you keep how do you keep boosters um, out of out of the recruiting game? Um, you know, holding the school more accountable for what their boosters are doing um, and just creating more parity in, in, in the sport. So, um, so, so you, you know, yeah, no, keep going. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, go ahead. I was, I was, I was finished. I was wrapping up. Well, so I, I think like, if I may step back for a moment, like, and I, I told you this, you know, when I was DMing you, like I have a tremendous amount of sympathy for your predicament because you were, I thought unfairly, and, and you, I know you can't talk about it, and it's like, and it happens all the time. You were caught up in all this nonsense at Arizona State that I'm sure, I mean, I can't say for sure, was a, just a byproduct of all of this, you know, uncertainty in this climate, right? And so some of your perspective, I would imagine, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is informed by the fact that you had to deal, you were essentially frontline middle management dealing with the with the with the bullshit that comes from uncertainty in this environment right basically yeah i think that's definitely part of it i think you know i i've you know spoken already a little bit about the nca but i think that there's a lot of things that they don't do very well um and and uh yeah just a lot of a lot of uncertainty you know the covid time brought a lot of interesting things up but um but yeah no i, I would agree with that i mean because my whole thing is like if you're a coach, one thing I will acknowledge is coaches, whether assistant coaches, head coaches, whatever, but if you're, if you're a coach and part of your job is to recruit, this entire thing throws so many impossible-to-navigate landmines up in the way where you really don't know what you're supposed to be doing because on the one hand, there's NCAA rules. On the other hand, there's this new NIL regime that, that, that people are sort of just figuring out about. On the other hand, there's, like, independent boosters doing their own thing where if you if you end up con- talking with them directly, you know, you get in trouble. And yet, like, they're the ones who have to go to the kids because, like, NIL. So it sounds a lot like – and I hear it from, you know, coaches that I talk to in basketball all the time. Like, it's, it's a lot of the challenge is just – them not really knowing how to operate with any sort of like clarity in this new environment. Yeah, I think it's a good point. And there's a there's so much unknown for the schools right now. I mean, that, that's kind of the reason you see every head coach and assistant coach and AD speaking out. You know, that something has to get fixed or needs to be more regulation. Um, you know, because. It, number one, like you said, in college football, like the livelihood of your program is recruiting. If you're a college football coach, the livelihood of your job is recruiting. If you, if you can't recruit as an assistant football coach or a head coach, it doesn't matter how good of an X's and O's guy you are. It doesn't matter how good of a of a of a technician you are. You'll get fired. It does, just doesn't matter. If you can't bring in talent, then then um, then you know you're you're losing your job. Like I, there was a. A Power Five head coach said to me one time, he said the reality is that college football is 85% talent acquisition and 15% talent development. And that, that's the truth. Like, being in it, it's all about talent acquisition. And this whole thing just throws a total wrench in it, again, back to the point you made. Like, because no one knows where the money's coming from. The coaches aren't allowed to be involved in it. Um, you know, they're, they're getting told by different recruits, you know, I'm getting $1 million to go to this school. What can you do for me? Coaches aren't supposed to be talking to the boosters about what they can get the players. Um, 
so again, it's just it's just chaotic, and I think that I think that with the combination of all those different things, the, the NIL transfer portal, one-time transfer waiver, the where, what recruiting is like right now, the the landscape of college football, that all of it combined is is is, is a bad combination. Um, but again, I think there are there are I think NIL is a great thing if it's done the right way. So, but I, you know, back to your point, like the, like the college football recruiting landscape is is really really intense, and it's it's the livelihood of the of a program, and if you can't recruit I mean your program's not going to be any good and as a coach you lose your job so that's just that's just you know makes the whole situation even more complicated yeah I mean like coaches are are, are the ones who like like I I, I had a long <clears throat> thread on this recently in the context of basketball but I'll, I'll reiterate it here like co- coaches are basically caught in between so you got you got labor the players who've got who are getting more power who are now able to you know make some money you've got and and then you've got coaches who are essentially management. They're middle management. They're not owners because they don't like. They're not investors in their program, right? But but the the compromise forever. And then, and then you've got ownership. But unlike in other entities, ownership is not one entity. It's boosters. It's kind of like school presidents. It's kind of trustees. It's kind of sneaker companies. It's kind of and and it's like you can't get ownership on the same page because it's different entities. It's not one crown. It's like whoever wants to get, you know, a shot at, you know, like a shot at the apple here. Right. And for years, boosters, which was kind of one faction of ownership, we'll say always did this shit in the shadows. I mean, it's, it's gone on since the dawn of time. I don't have to ask you about how your recruitment went or anybody else's, but like there's always been ways that kids, you know, there's a lot of stories out there about how kids have been paid over the years. It's just that no one really talked about it. It wasn't in the open. So now, you know, it's a little bit like when you immediately decriminalize it or, 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 you know, you illegalize a drug. All of a sudden, nobody really knows what the rules are. And I appreciate that. At the same time, and I feel badly for coaches because the agreement was always look. You know, you take the you guys shoulder a lot of risk as coaches. You the coaches get fucked because they're they're the ones who have to deal with all the bullshit from kids and and you know keep everything inside the locker room and make sure there's nothing. And the agreement is like, okay, we'll do that, but you let us run our program. Well, now you've introduced this massive variable outside of their control, which is the ways in which guys are getting paid. And I completely empathize with the coaches because it's like, what the hell are we supposed to do? You know, if we play it, you know, close to the edge, we could be, you know, illegally communicating with boosters. If we don't play it close to the edge and we just play totally by the book, we're going to lose our shirt in recruiting. So my whole thing is, yes, that sucks for for that middle management class of of people. It sucks that, you know, they, they no longer have the same you know, for them, they just don't know what, what the arena they're operating in looks like. But if you're going to let kids get paid, I don't know that it's ever going to be avoidable short of just banning boosters and saying, okay, you're allowed to donate to one fund called the, you know, the, the NIL fund. And, and some of that is, is going to be, and we are going to be as coaches, the ones distributing that pool. Like, if those were the terms, would you be on board with it? Where the coaches could essentially distribute a pool of, 
you know, independently raised money in the same way that, you know, a school would decide we're going to do a new building now, you know, or we're going to do a new practice facility or we're going to do a renovation to the scoreboard. In this case, it's just like the, the, the acquisition of players fund, but you guys have a clear amount of money that comes from that NIL pool that you're, you know, that coaches are allowed to allocate. Would that make it a more comfortable situation? Yeah, I, I think I think that would be a step in the right direction for sure. Just because it would it would create more parity in the whole process. I think uh, a, a lot of the you know, like you just compared it to the um, you know, like when you legalize a drug or you know, no one really knows what's going on. And I think that's the one of the biggest problems right now too. Is is some certain laws are different in certain states where coaches are allowed to be involved or or, or, or not allowed to be involved. Um, so no one really knows what the rules are. No one really knows how to react. Coaches don't really know what's going on. You know, am I allowed to call this booster and figure out if uh, you know if if you know if I can you know work on getting this guy a deal? And uh, you know, you're seeing too like a lot of some coaches are just being ultra aggressive and saying, well, we're going to try to win and build a roster, and and they got collectives that are working for them. Uh, so I, I think I think again I, I want the players to get paid. That, that's I've never had a problem with that. I don't think it's an issue. Uh, I think I should be able to. Um, it's a business for everyone right now, except for the players, and it's finally a business for the players too. They can make money based on um, you know the, the 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 deals they can get. But, but what we're seeing now, because of because of the unknown, because of the 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 you know bribery or the inducements, if you will, to get guys to go in the portal, to get guys to go to a certain school. Um, and and the lack of parity. There, there's no salary cap. There's no nothing that me, nothing that says that a, a certain school can offer this or that. Um, it, it, it creates this bad combination that 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 isn't sustainable. And, and and I think like what you just said with um you know creating something that runs through the university. Like I would I'd be all for that. I, again because it it levels the playing field and creates parity and and and, and reduces the the amount that. Um, you know, boosters are going behind the backs to tamper with student athletes to get them in the transfer portal. I don't think anyone thinks that like tampering is good for for you know college football, but that but that's what you're seeing now. You know, with with the current climate, and you're seeing it you know happen at a, at a at a higher level, or at least you're seeing it happen with money, and you're seeing it be public more at a higher level because of because of uh, you know the money involved in the current climate of the sport. Well, and and I think you said create parity. To be clear. I think it would create transparency, not necessarily parity, because the Lord, Lord knows that Alabama, you know, unless you unless you have a clear cut salary cap or something, right? But if you're if if the spirit of NIL, which is kind of like, yeah, let the kids play the open market, is it remains even if you create complete transparency around it, you you make a clear path. It's like literally as simple as okay, every school has an NIL fund, and each year. Their boosters and their any entity can pour as much or as little money as they want in there, and then the coaches are are able to to go out and in the recruiting process essentially acquire players. That's a tremendous amount of transparency because everybody knows the rules. But <laughs> I'm not sure that it creates any parity. And for me, I'll be I'll be totally honest. I'm a little torn on that because I don't want to deprive a kid of getting. You know, I recognize like kids aren't going. Most of these kids are not going to go to the NFL. So if so, a, a signing day bonus, essentially, call it whatever you want, a signing day bonus, that might be their their biggest payday in their life, right? I mean, like, and so as much as as a UMass fan, right? Like, if our pool is four hundred grand, 
and Alabama's is 40 million, we're never going to be able to compete with that. But the truth is, we weren't really competing with them anyway in terms of for recruits. So, like, I guess I have a hard time just like ethically with my, you know, with my own values saying, yeah, like, this kid shouldn't be able to get whatever he wants as a signing bonus because it might be his only shot to get paid. Yeah, uh, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I, I don't know what the what the exact solution is. If I did, I'd probably be uh, doing something other than what I'm doing right now and figuring this thing out. But I, I, I think that, um, you know, at the at the highest level of sport, you know, I, I always go back to the NFL and like and think about the NFL's um, model and and how how they do things. And obviously, they have the salary cap, and you can pay a guy as much as you want, but but you can't, um, but you can't. You know, if you if you pay a certain a certain guy, you know, a hundred million dollars, then you're not going to have as much money to pay everybody else. And, and I, I still think that like if we're going to pay the players to the schools, that something or that there has to be some kind of um, that there'll be some kind of regulation or some kind of rule around like how much you can actually pay guys um, because of the because of the parity factor because of you, you don't want to have uh, I mean at least I don't think it's good for college football to to have boosters out there paying guys ridiculous amounts of money on different different sides of, of things to, to induce guys to go to certain schools or do something to, get, to go in the transfer portal. Once a guy's a good season, they go in the portal and go somewhere else. I, I don't I don't think that's good. I think it's good if a, if a guy uh, has a good season and, and the, 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 the uh, company at the school is that wants to do a deal with them or if Nike wants to do a deal with them or, or things like that. But I, I don't I don't think that I don't think that um, you know, like to what you said, like running it through all through the school there. Yes, that creates transparency, and that that would probably get rid of the of the tampering part of it. So like that would be that would be a good thing because obviously, um, you know, a school couldn't uh, couldn't you know if it's going through the school, they're probably not going to uh, play around with tampering too much with deals because uh, they're probably going to get busted pretty quickly. Where right now you have the boosters doing it themselves, um, you know, going through the back channels to do it. So. Um, I, I think I think that's a, that's a better solution than what we have now. I don't know what the exact answer is. It's funny. I, I I've been asked this a lot, like how I would fix it, and I don't have a great answer for it. Um, but I think it's going to take leadership from a lot of different levels. Hopefully, there's a new I mean, there's going to be a new president in the NCAA, which um, hopefully provides some leadership or at least some more leadership than we've seen in, in the past. Um, and 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 figures this thing out somehow. The super conference thing, SEC commissioner, like. Are they going to come in and do something? I mean, obviously something's going to change. You're already you're seeing it happen already on a federal level with I think some I forget who a U.S. senator came out and said they're they're working on something right now. So um, yeah, I, I don't I don't know the exact the exact solution, um, but I, I I just think I just think that the current climate where where things are right now and you combine it all with the with the transfer portal being able to play right away. And the NIL is just that it's no longer NIL and it's pay for play. And then the argument, like like we've been talking about, becomes: Are you okay with the pay for play part? Of it? Are, are are we okay with, um, you know, allowing guys to get paid to go to a certain school or to go to um to go in the transfer portal or to pick one school over another? And and I think that that that's really where the the argument comes to. So yeah, I mean, obviously the devil's in the details with all this stuff. I think my inclination, and and it's subject to change as I learn as I learn more. And I also think, just as an aside, people should be willing to not dig their heels in so much one way or the other, because the reality is like the facts on the ground are changing in real time, and it's very easy to kind of like, you know, say I'm on this side or on that side, and and 
the really it truly is like the devil's in the details. So we got we got to figure out like where we're going here. My broad inclination here is to create because okay, w- one other thing that's really interesting I find and this is going to offend some of the people who are on kind of my side of the issue. The truth is that the NFL less the NFL but like the NBA certainly is a is a player driven league. LeBron James if the if it was a truly open market with no salary cap he is being wildly underpaid. In college, the truth is, and, like, I don't love to admit this, but I'm just going to be honest, most people don't really give a shit about the players. Like, like in terms of they're not going to the games because of, yes, there's Johnny Manziel's and there's, you know, you know, one-off talents who are, you know, Todd Gurley's or whatever, people who have, like, insane – of the the game day experience and you know often your it's your alma mater or you just grew up going there it's usually not because of your um you know yes there's like if you're a Michigan fan you might be like well I fell in love with the team because of Charles Woodson or whatever but there's a lot of fans who just go to games because it's like a thing they've been doing forever and it's not about the particular player on that roster so I definitely don't disagree with you that when these guys are making this kind of money, it's not because of like the market value in the same sense it would be if Peyton Manning or, you know, LeBron James did an endorsement deal. Like I I get that. I totally get that. Um, I also think that as long as you're going to have boosters in the mix who love their teams and want them to win, this is their way essentially. I mean, speaking as I I wouldn't call myself a booster, but like, you know, if I, I have, I give my my you know few hundred dollars and grand or whatever to the to the department every year. This is a way in which, and I just this, I'm just speaking as a fan. I think if you're a fan, sorry about this is a bit a bit of a rant, so you'll have to bear with me. But I I think that as a fan, if you have frustration with the way UMass is doing things or whatever your team you root for, and you feel like their allocation of resources is not where you want it to be. You think they should put more here, less there. You really, up until this point, have have been completely powerless, right? Like, you you really don't have any ability. And if you're a a fan of the pro level, you know, like, you're never going to have that ability because there's going to be some billionaire who makes all those decisions. Now, as a fan, this opens up a world of possibilities where we feel, I mean, I I can't speak for every fan, but the excitement around this, I think, is – well, now we can actually, like, flex a little. Like, we actually can play mini-owner. And especially you talk about collectives coming together, all of a sudden it's almost like you're gamifying it, right? Like you're making it into a game for the fans, which makes it really fun because a lot of college sports fandom is about community and, like, you talk about the Internet now and it's just, like, niche memes and fun shit. So the the coaches are now in a – in a much tougher spot. But if you're a fan, all of a sudden, like, even if you're a wealthy fan before, what could you do? You could you could get a locker room, right? And, like, you know, that's kind of cool. You help fund a, a scoreboard. You, you, you know, you, you get the academic facility named after your, 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 your father who passed or whatever. That's cool. But now <laughs> you can actually 
Go out and get the kids you want that you think can help you win. And as long as that Pandora's box is open and anybody can basically communicate with a kid or, or back channel with a kid, that's going to be a really hard box to close. So if the NCAA doesn't get their arms around this like really quickly, it's, it's never going back. And, and I know that, you know, I, like, I, I think the clock is ticking because just, just think about that. If you're a fan and you can now, instead of like, you know, getting your name on a bathroom, you can a- actually be in the mix to, uh, to essentially give a signing bonus to the three best kids in the class or whatever. Like, Who's going to turn – what fan is going to go back to the old ways? Yeah, no, it's, it's a good point. It, it puts it back in the in the fans' hands in really a way it hasn't been before. Um, and, and I think uh, – I, I, again, I don't think even, like, the collective stuff is necessarily bad. I think that, like, when, when you have these collectives that can go out and raise all this money, it's just in the way that they're using it now that a lot of people have issues with. And, again, I, look, I view it from, like, the coach's side – and when the collectives are out there raising all this money and then going and, and, and trying to get kids to enter the transfer portal to go to their school, like, again, in any sport that that, that, that could happen in, like, regulation has come in. Like, with the salary cap, the you know, the college football, the difference in college sports is there's recruiting and not free agency. You know, that you just – it's uh it, it it's actually recruiting to try to get guys to go to school. So obviously like inducements have come into play, which is why, in my opinion, like the, the regulation has to come in. But but you know I, I think I think collectives and stuff are here to stay. I don't think any of that's any, any of that's going to change. I think it's good. Like you said, it allows fans to have a part in it. You know, again, even like a lot of these collectives, Tennessee, Florida, all these Penn State Penn State just started one. You know where they have these programs where you know. Yeah, you can give ten bucks a month and get a certain amount of something in re- in return, but you support this collective that then goes and pays the Penn State student athletes or the Florida student athletes, um, and and rewards them and and uh, and things like that. I think all that stuff's great. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I think that's good and and uh, you know it's is good for the kid and good for the sport. But you know, obviously, again, it just comes down to the to the details of what where it can go wrong and like anything and when when something new happens you know people take advantage of it and uh and and try to find the loopholes in it and uh, and, and and i think you're going to see that um the schools that did the best job of finding those loopholes are going to be the ones that have the best programs i mean uh you know come come a year or two from now uh it's it's uh you know it's it's it's, it's going to be pretty clear which ones did a good job of finding those loopholes and i which ones had the best collectives and too like you, know, you were talking about college you know college football isn't really a, a, a player-driven league, you know, and I, I agree with that. I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, guys are there so for not very long. You know, the best players are only there for three years. Um, you know, by the time a guy plays, sometimes it's only a couple years, and then they're off to the NFL. So I think that kind of hurts in the player-driven, you know, player-driven part of it. Um, but, but yeah, there's, there's no doubt that, uh, that players – you know, with on actual brand deals, when you're actually talking about like what a company would give these guys, it's nowhere close to what the NFL or what what pro players would get, what a LeBron James or the, or, or actual pro athletes um, would get, just because you know they're they're not as they're not as well known, they're not as you know fans aren't as aren't as much attached to the player as they are attached to the school that they went to or the school they've been a fan of for you know for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I, I am as we talk. I, I'm just the wheels in my head are spinning a little, so I know it's, it's, it's both somewhat of an interview and, and and also somewhat of a brainstorm. And as, as we're talking, like it's it definitely one thing I think we, we, that has to happen is there has to be some sort of comprehensive federal legislation on this because 
you can't have 50 states with patchwork, you know, with 50 different patchworks of legislation because pretty quickly, <laughs> once again, Alabama is just, you know, you think you talk about the role that football plays in the state of Alabama, like they're going to pass legislation that is most favorable to whatever wild NIL deals there are because they want to stay competitive, right? And it's going to be essentially whoever has the ear of their state legislature. So you have to have something because it's, it's a national sport. So you have to have something that governs nationally. Um, I, I think I just – I guess the hardest part here is like the communication or what is permitted between coaches and staff and – basically independent collectives or boosters. Like, to me, everything that's, that's tricky here, not everything, but a lot of it, a lot of it stems from the, the lack of clarity surrounding that relationship. Do you think that's yeah. like a, a fair assessment? A hundred percent. Yeah. I, th- I think, I think that's really the main issue. And, and, and like that to me, like the lack of clarity and the lack of understanding, like who can talk to who and can, can the boosters communicate with the players that are, that are at a different school? Can they communicate with recruits? Um, because th- like, to me, that, that intersects right there of boosters being able to communicate with recruits to promise them NIL deals. That's when it cha- flips from NIL um, and players, you know, doing endorsement deals to, um, you know, to whatever term you want to use, to pay for play, to players just straight out getting paid with no regulation or no no rules around it. Um, and uh, I, I think like that's like what you just said, like the communication part, the not having the clarity of who can talk to who. What can can coaches like go to Booster and say, you know, um, you know, here's, you know, we have this on the table. You know, I know, you know, originally Boosters or coaches were told like, hey, we we can tell kids. You know, we can tell kids, hey, these are the deals that our players have done, but we couldn't yeah. go and promise them deals. We couldn't be like, hey, like, right. you come here, this booster is going to give you this money. We can say, hey, our quarterback last year made 200 grand from this car dealership. Like, I'm not, I don't know if it'll be, you know, I'm pretty sure it'll be there, you know, but like, what, what's, what, where's the line? And so, what you said, and we talked a little bit, it's different state by state. I mean, Penn State, I know, was working on like some state laws to, to get, um, uh, to like to get some clarity that like Ohio had an advantage that Penn State didn't. Ohio coaches and, and don't quote me on this directly. I'm not sure the exact difference, like what they were and weren't allowed to do. But like something like Ohio coaches were allowed to be part of the conversations or were allowed to, like introduce the player to the collective, where Penn State couldn't. Like Penn State, due to the state law, like wasn't allowed to be part of that conversation. So again, just having like a level and understanding, and this is kind of where like we talked about the NCA and like their kind of lack of control over this whole thing. You know, I mean. It's been a while that people have been saying this was going to come down. Um, I remember hearing about this like like years and years ago that like this was in the in the discussion in the works. And um, again, they obviously had their had their hand forced by um, I believe it was a court ruling. But um, but yeah, I mean, I think that just the lack of leadership all around is has has caused this to to be um, you know a, a bad situation where I think everyone can agree like something's going to change. Uh, it's just a matter of what it is what the solution is and, and, uh, and at what level it happens. Like you said, it'll, it'll probably come from the federal level um, you know, to, to come up with some kind of even playing field. Yeah, I mean, bigger picture here is also that, look, the NCAA, for, for all its many flaws, fundamentally maintains the belief, or, or not the belief, but the, the position, that they were in the business of amateurism and therefore – compensation of this type was 
completely anathema to their business model. That, that, that That's not what they did, right? That you cannot get paid because – and they and part of the reason that the NCAA would always fight these dumb things, and I'm not defending the NCAA here, but, you know, you'd always hear these instances of like, you know, like the story at UMass where some kid took 600 bucks on their phone bill and didn't even know and it was part of it and they came down hard on them, is that because once you open up the Pandora's box and you yeah. don't enforce that, that dump, that, you know, really petty stuff, then the entire lid is blown off of the entire enterprise because if it's if it's a dollar or if it's $10 million, their position is that this is amateurism, you cannot, you cannot be compensated, period. So yeah. it raises a, big, a more fundamental question, which is something I've been thinking about a long time. It's not inconceivable that the NCAA will cease to exist within a decade, or, or, or it will probably exist, but it will be unrecognizable in, in, any, in, any, in its current form, right? Because the entire existence of the NCAA was predicated upon there not being money of this sort, right? And so, you know, and they say it's going to be like a year and a half search for their next person. I don't know who's going to be able to come in there and put the lid back on, especially another 18 months from now, right? And then they're going to have to actually chart that policy, roll it out, explain what that looks like administratively. It's not like you just, like, snap your fingers and everybody knows the deal now. So you're looking at, at the very least, you know, two – because Mark Emmert's not going to do anything in his final, you know, bunch of months. You're looking at two years of more uncertainty surrounding this. And, yeah, maybe they make a couple – they prosecute a couple cases on the side for, like, the most crazy shit, and then people sort of rein it in a little. But I, I don't know where we go from here because even if it's just NIL in a more, like, traditional form, if people want to pay kids and, – and it's – you know, like, you – you know, unless you put a, a cap on what a booster is allowed to donate a year, right? Unless, but even you do that, and it's just like he opens up, you know, another LLC to fund to fund more, right? Like, the it, it really comes down to I think in the end at the end of the day is like, what appetite are these major boosters, right? Because the collective stuff in the end, like everybody giving twenty bucks a month, you know, that's like supporting a grassroots candidate versus a super PAC who has, who has unlimited amounts of money, right? Like there's ways for them to do it. And unless you have a really, really forceful, uh, you know, enforcement arm, I, I just don't know what it's going to look like from here, but it, it, but it may end, this whole thing may end with like, they're not really being an NCAA in any way that we've asso- associated the NCAA before. Yeah, I, I think that I think that's how it will end. Uh, I think uh, I think you're right. I mean, I, I don't think the NCA will <laughs> will you know need to exist. I think that you know the a lot of talk. I think you know they they came out with that new NCA plan, which I know keeps the NCA in place, but really it puts all the enforcement on the conferences. Um, you know, and, and uh, puts all the power in their hands. So I think, yeah, we'll get to the point probably where the NCAA, there's no reason for the NCA. Um, if it's not even amateurism anymore, you know, the, the, the NCA's business model doesn't quite, uh, or the, their whole mission statement or the purpose isn't, isn't really there anymore. So uh, I, think, I think you're right on that, that standpoint. Sure. And as much as I crush the NCA, I, I do feel badly for athletes in non-revenue sports because the NCAA – for all its problems, 
you know, it does a fairly decent job of running the, you know, Division Three women's soccer tournament, right? Like, it's an it's an entity that exists to do, you know, that kind of stuff, like, right? And and the problem is, it's able to do that stuff fairly well because of the the, the revenues it it generates, actually mainly from the men's basketball tournament. Like, college football has sort of already been kind of its own thing, and it's kind of weird that the NCAA's, I mean, like. College football, I think, is a totally different beast. Basketball to an extent, but, you know, basketball, the tournament, get you know, the licensing fees, that's where they make all their money. Um, but football, like, doesn't actually make the NCAA a whole lot of money, and bowl games and all that stuff kind of exists outside of the, you know, the only thing that the NCAA did was essentially maintain in college football is uphold these rules about payment and eligibility and all those things. Um, so I, I do have concerns about, you know, if you're just a Division II athlete, you know, you you kind of need an NCAA or you need something. You need some central body that governs it. And, and because all the money is basically in men's basketball and, and football, um, you know, it, we lose sight of the fact that, you know, the, the other 900 member schools outside of, you know, 50 or 100, like, this is going to have dramatic effects on them, too. Um, you know, like, I, I even think you have a brother who played at Colgate, right? Yeah. Yep. And, and like, is this conversation that we're having, you know, kind of totally foreign to him to a certain extent? Yeah, I, for sure. I mean, we're obviously talking – I mean – we're talking about probably, you know, the top 50 programs in college football, you know, top 60 maybe, I'm not sure, but the exact number, but, you know, this is something that only impacts them, you know, I don't think, a, I don't think a Colgate football booster is going to come out and, uh, you know, try to pay a kid, I mean, I, I could be wrong though, he's going yeah, no, to pay a kid, pay a kid to, to go into the, you know, to transfer from, you know, a Division One school down to FCS for a ridiculous amount of money. You know, could that happen in the future? I mean, uh, it is actually funny just, like, whatever you think of all this, to kind of I, – I I'm laughing because my dad's a, a highly uninvolved Colgate alum. Then he went to uh-huh. UMass for grad school. But, um, you know, there are a lot of rich people who went to Colgate. Well, that, like, well, that, well, that, well, because I, I literally, man, as I was saying that, I'm, like, saying no Colgate alum is going to pay a kid to transfer to Colgate. And as I'm saying, I'm like – they actually might do that. <laughs> well, no, and, and I actually think, like, one of the funny side effects of this is, is that you're going to see, like, one-off weird shit where, where, where it's like somebody at, you know, like, and I think about, like, a Davidson or something, right, where it's like a, you know, it's a very good academic school. They have very high standards for getting kids in. But if a kid is like, you know, like, they have alums who could, who could pay it. And and I think of like especially in men's basketball where you need one or two kids a year kind of to be like trans transcendent, you may see yeah. the emergence of some teams. That's kind of the fun side of NIL. People talk about how it could lead to lack of parity, but in some weird universe, there's going to be some place that where there's just a one-off booster who's like a nut job who brings in a bunch of studs for a couple of years and they win. You know, they they go to the elite eight or something like it. Yeah. It's, <laughs> It's kind of wild to think about, actually. And Colgate, you know, is kind of like in that in that sphere of, of like the Patriot League. There's a lot of people with money. Yeah, a lot of a lot of rich grads for sure. Yeah, I mean, you never know. Can, can, um, can we find out who that person is going to be for UMass football and UMass basketball? 
Well, we're trying, <laughs> and that's a good segue because, I mean, one of the things that this has allowed us to do is, like, have those conversations. I should, by the way, I'd be remiss to note if uh, the perfect opportunity. Tonight's program is being brought to you by the fine folks at Five College Movers, world-class, stress-free moving in the Pioneer Valley and beyond. Call Pat and the gang. Tell them we sent you. Uh, friends of UMass Athletics, and and they're going to get involved in some. I would I would wager to bet in some NIL universe. I have also heard murmurings, by the way, um, at UMass and elsewhere of booster clubs being repurposed or spun out and creating new LLCs to essentially use booster clubs in conjunction with the coach, if it's permitted. You know, I'm sure they got to figure out all the legal stuff. To basically serve as like a as an NIL uh, collective of its own, but like probably with you know the sanction of like that, and that's the question we got to find out here: is is the AD allowed to oversee this? Is the coach allowed to oversee this? What are the as you said, what are the rules around? Because it's fairly straightforward if the coach is allowed to talk, right? Yeah. The booster club, let's say the booster club has a million dollars in its bank account and nothing's being done with it. You take 450 grand out for a recruiting class. You basically get four kids for 100 grand. You get the best class of your life. Are you allowed, as the coach, to talk to whoever administers that, you know, entity and say, "I need this for this kid. I need this for this kid." If you can, that's a game changer, right? Because now there's complete clarity. You get the kids you need, and you can be moving. If you can't. Now you're in really thorny legal legal gray area and whatever. But for UMass, um, we've always talked about the guy, um, John Laguerre, who is the CEO of um, uh, T-Mobile for many years. It's kind of okay. like, that, like yeah. he, he ran track at UMass. They've tried. Um, they never really could. I think he's given a little to track. Um, and I recently learned – which is a crazy story. I would we should try to get this guy on the show at some point. But um, there was a guy who owned somebody. Looked this up. I probably shouldn't even be sharing this on here. And I'm probably whatever. I got this from a very reliable source. So take it with a grain of salt if you'd like. But there was a guy who is a part owner of AS Roma, the soccer team in Europe. Um, UMass alum, I think. Look him up. He's about 63 years old. I think at one point he may have been an owner with Celtics. Somebody can surface the name. I'll figure it out. I feel like Schneids, you would figure this out. Maybe I think I've even told you about his name. And this dude allegedly, the story I heard, and I have no idea if this is true. During the Steve Lapis years, when they hired Lapis after Bruiser in the early um, aughts, like 2001, he wanted somebody else. He wanted to assert himself, essentially, and, and flex and be like, I'm going to bring this guy in. When they didn't hire the coach he wanted, the guy disappeared forever. And now he's like 63 and has added another billion or whatever to his net worth. My fanatical goal is to somehow bring this guy back in the fold, but I don't really know if I trust UMass to uh, to, 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 to handle it as, as a deputy <laughs> as they could. I feel like I could get him. Um, I have some other schemes, um, in my, in my, in the back of my mind, I, I, um, you know, we'll, we'll see. What, what do you think? I mean, actually, well, let me, real quickly, let me talk to you about that. At Penn State, like, I just want UMass fans to, because I've been to Penn State. I, I told the story on here. I stayed at the Lionette House in 2011. Um, 
Long story short, my first girlfriend was from Pennsylvania, and my first like like high school, serious high school girlfriend we met in the summer, and her sister was a lionette, and so we stayed in like this is like the dance team at Penn State. They were elite, so we were. I, I got the full Penn State effect, um, and you know I didn't go to UMass, Adam. You don't know this, but um, so back in my day, I, I went to school in the Midwest, and so I would travel to on weekends. I went to a D three school. I just grew up at, at UMass when Cal Perry was there, so that's how I got into it. But I, um, I would tra- I've traveled to, to Ole Miss, and I've been to a bunch of places, so I understand like the universe that we're talking about. But I want to come from a player like your experience off the field, really, at Penn State versus UMass. Like, it, it, explain the worlds that we're dealing with for people who may not fully appreciate what, what we're up against. Yeah, I mean, man, there's there's a lot of differences in, in those two places, um, you know, and I love both of them for different reasons, but, uh, but I mean, Penn State's just a different beast, man. I mean, you know, the first thing I remember noticing when I went to UMass was just how, like, you know, I, I went, when I was at Penn State, I mean, you know, as a football player, like, you're, like, walking to class, and, like, people are asking you for pictures, and you're, like, you know, you walk into, like, a go get breakfast somewhere and families and men are coming up to you and, like, you know, they, everyone knows who everyone is on the football team. And, you know, it's it's a whole it's a whole culture at Penn State. You know, it's, it's just, especially as a big recruit when you come in, you know, everyone's watching everything you do. It's just a, it's, it's a wild world like that. I remember being at UMass and I had, like, and I was, like, you know, re- returning as an All-American and had just led the country in catches and, I remember, like, the, for the very first time after I was there for, like, a year and a half, someone, like, came up to me in, like, the dining hall and was like, are you the tight end that's, like, supposed to be pretty good? And, like, it was, like, the first time I got recognized at UMass. And, like, again, like, at a place like Penn State, like, that wouldn't – that would never happen. I remember, like, not even, you know I, – I was, you know, best friends with Christian Hackenberg, who was our quarterback. Like, he couldn't even, like, go in public at Penn State. Well, yeah, um, I mean, he was, like, a – I mean, he was, like, a – that was a major signing when he signed. Yeah, that was, like, no, national it was, news. It was a – it's so just a different world from that standpoint, you know. Obviously, like, you just don't have the – as, you know, with not being in a Power 5 school, you don't have the same, you know, just the same, like, on-campus passion, um, you know. And I think, obviously, that comes from not winning for a while, you know, that people yeah. just stop caring. Um, you know, I think that if we were winning, it'd be a little different. Uh, but I mean, I think so, everybody knows who Kale McCarr is now, you know what I mean? Like For sure, yep. No, it's, point. like, amazing when, when I went back last year for the BC opener um, – just how many kids were like, and you know, I always say this, like I came up as a UMass fan and during an era. And like, the reason I do this show is that like for a three year year period when I was eight, nine and 10, when Calipari and Camby and they were number one in the country, it was truly like, I remember going to Penn state, you know, for in 2011, probably. And that the closest comp I had was like, Oh, this feels like what it was like, what got me into, um, college football, like the same buzz yeah. and energy around that campus when I was there was, was truly what got me into college sports. And so it's funny that I basically, you know, I ride with my team, but I've, I've stuck with a team that essentially hasn't had that in many, many years. Um, but it, but I was just saying when I came back to campus last year um, for the opener, there were so many kids just like walking around wearing, you know, UMass hockey, national champions gear, and, like, and if that's college hockey. Like, let's be, you know, yeah. let's be real. If, but I think the challenge is, and I'm kind of curious to get your perspective, like, what is, what is UMass, what is, what should UMass football be? You're given a blank canvas to kind of 
you know, and enough money to kind of make them relevant. Like, what's the brand you're you're uh, you're hawking? Yeah, I mean, I think you look at like you look at programs all across the country who have gone FBS in recent years, and I, I think you know, like like that that's what UMass should strive to be. You look at Old Dominion who went FBS, I think, after UMass did and, and has, you know, has a heck of a facility. They're recruiting at a high level. They're winning a lot of games. You look at, like, schools like Appalachian State and, like, you know, in my opinion, there's no reason that UMass can't get to that level. Um, you know, I think the major challenges are, number one, you don't have a conference right now. And I think that's obviously, as every UMass, has kind of been the bane of the existence of UMass football right now. And everyone, obviously, I mean, we've been talking about getting a conference since I was at UMass in 2016. You know, we were begging to get in conferences then. Uh, I think it's just hard to not be in a conference. It's hard financially. It's hard you know, just to not have a conference, a consistent schedule you're playing. You know, when I was at UMass, we were playing in Florida and South Carolina and Tennessee and Boston College and BYU and, um, you know, just a just a tough schedule. So I think I think that's that, that that's a big thing. I, I think a conference would, um, you know, it helps in recruiting. I, I, I'm a I just think the conference thing is, is a is a, a big player in this whole situation. So um, let me let me actually ask you a question about. Well, go ahead, go ahead. Give me your other stuff because I got a conference thought in a second. But keep keep going. Yeah. Um, no. Yeah. I mean, I think um, you know, I, I think now you know, I think Coach Brown is is kind of the the culture fit that that you need at UMass. You know, I, it's the reality at UMass is that it's not an easy place to recruit to, um, it, especially in football. You know, you don't have a lot of talent in in New England. Um, you know, you you gotta you, you're then you're then going into the DMV, you're going into Pennsylvania, and you're trying to and you're trying to recruit, and obviously you're getting the bottom of the barrel there. You know, you can go you can you can go in into places like uh, you get a guy like Isaiah Rogers from Florida, who the Florida schools didn't want, um, and you, and you got to hit on some of those some of those kids that like no one else thought that were going to be good, um, or you got to take some risks in in maybe like a grade area or a, yep. or an off the field area yep. take a kid that a big time school won't take, but you got to take them at UMass. So then you better have a program with really good discipline, a really good culture, or those kids will just run wild because they're coming from not, not having any, any structure, you know, in, in their, in their high school life. So, um, you know, I think, I think that was like possibly part of a reason before, you know, if you're bringing in kids that, you know, that, that, you know, a bigger school wouldn't take from a grade perspective or from a, I don't want to say character perspective, but from just, a, you know, checking all the boxes off the field as well, you know, and you're taking them in a place like UMass, then you better have a really darn good program culture to be able to develop those kids and, and uh, you know, keep everyone rowing the boat in the same direction. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, you, you, you got to – you got to be able to, to to find some of those kids, and you better evaluate really, really well. Because again, you're not gonna you're not going to beat people in recruiting. I mean, that, you're not going to beat most schools recruiting. Uh, you're not going to beat um, a lot of these programs across the country in, in in recruiting, at least with where UMass is right now. In the future, I'm hoping they will. I'm hoping they're out beating all the all the group of five schools. But um, you know, right now you just need to evaluate really, really well. You can't miss on a ton of kids, and I think that was one of the, pre- the issues we saw with the, you know, you saw with the pre- previous staff. Was, you know, if you, you sign a class of twenty-five guys and you miss on twelve of them, I mean, that's half your that's half your roster. Um, you know, by by you know by the end of a few years, it's almost half the guys you've missed on that aren't that aren't helping you, and that that, that hurts. So you got you better evaluate really well too um, from that standpoint. But 
but yeah, we can talk conference a little bit. I think I think I think that's a big part of it. I really do. I think yeah, so obviously the, the the whole basketball thing makes it difficult. I I understand that completely too. Yeah, no, uh, like listen, conference is a tough one that we we've talked about a lot in the show, and like my thing with conference is right now. So so two things. First and foremost, I would say like as someone who's been watching UMass athletics for a while. What's pretty wild is if you think about the Atlantic 10, I mean, I'm 36. I'm not that old, but so not that long ago in the Atlantic 10, in my, you know, like the stuff moves fairly quickly. And when I was a kid in the league, you had Penn State, Rutgers, and this is all varying points, like from, let's say, 92 on. In the Atlantic 10 for basketball were Penn State, Rutgers, West Virginia, uh, later, you had Xavier, um, uh, Butler. Uh, I mean, the list goes on in terms of oh, Villanova was at one point in the A-10. That wasn't really when I was. But the point is, UMass has done a uniquely bad job under previous administrations in positioning themselves um, during, during periods of realignment, right? Um, because the truth is, like, you know this probably, but – Penn State football was not always Penn State football, if that makes sense, right? Like, it wasn't, you know, in the grand scheme of things, like Alabama and, and, and certain other, Notre Dame, these programs have been around, you know, powers since the 20s, right? Pre-Paterno, like, Paterno built that thing from the ground up. It was it was like UMass when he got there, right? And and it wasn't really even until, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you probably know the history better, but it wasn't really even until the early to mid-80s when Penn State football became kind of, now that's a while, right? You're talking 35, 40 years, but it's not 100 years, right? And so my point is always that if you gain a little momentum, what UMass's greatest asset is, and it's, it's actually its, it's potential, it's a flagship state university in a part of the state that's actually uniquely well-suited to college football. I say that in the sense of just like Penn State, it's, the fact that it's removed from the city makes it a, destin, a game day. Like, it's a great – it's a shithole of a stadium, but it is a great place to go watch a college football game. It's a great place to spend a day on the weekend. And yeah. I note all this because – the short term is, okay, you got to get in a conference. Well, you've been really bad for a decade. And the only conferences that even have a chance of getting, getting you are a, a completely decimated AAC. And that's kind of it in terms of the short term, right? Combine this with the fact that with NIL and all this other stuff that's going on, we're about to see massive upheaval around college football one way or the other within the next five to ten years. You combine streaming deals with Amazon and possibilities. Like, we might see a national college football league where there's, like, 30 teams, right? And everybody else, including the bottom of the, the sort of bottom half of the Power Five, is left to fend for themselves, in which case UMass becomes much more marketable and compelling. My point in all this is to say that the rush to jump into a conference, when you consider all those variables and all the uncertainty surrounding that, to me, sometimes it's like, I don't know, we're, we're, we're getting paydays to go play Texas A&M. 
We're getting Army to come to UMass. We're getting – and I understand, like, bowl tie-ins and things like that. But I just, like – my question is, like, what conference? And, the, and is it better than what we have now? Yeah, I, I think the whole time we when, – when I was playing, it was always AAC or Conference USA. Those were the two that you were, like, uh, just vying to, to get in back when I Which was Which were much better, by the way, six years ago. Very true. Yeah, much better. And I, I do think, too, like, you know, a frustrating thing – as as a player, as a as an alum, and someone who loves that school, and 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 um, you know, really, I mean, that place, you know, was the peak of my college football career, or my football career at all, was at UMass. So I, I love that place, and I think, you know, I think that when I left there, I really felt that place was like turning around. You know, that that we had some really darn good players. I mean, guys that have played that are playing in the NFL. Um, you know, you look at our our 2016, 2017 team. I mean, the, the, amount of, the amount of good players we had, you had Andrew Ford at quarterback, you had um, Jack Driscoll, who's still in the NFL, tackle for the Eagles, you had Andy Isabella, who you know, one of the best receivers in the country, second-round pick for the Cardinals, you had you had me, a two-time All-American, you had Brighton Barr, who transferred into school. And, you know, Brighton Barr, who is, who is 73 years old, actually. Yeah, he, he was like 42 when he was playing his final year. But, I mean, we had really, really good players, and I, I felt like we were, you know, my my final season there in 2017, I think it was, you know, we were 4-8, and eight, um, which is a lot better than, than a record they've had the last few years. Um, but, but you know, we had, we had beaten BYU. We, you know, we were playing some of these really, you know, no one was blowing us out. Um, you know, we no, were, you were losing, the thing is, as a fan, you guys were losing really frustrating games. Cause like, exactly. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you guys had a fuck ton of talent, as you said, and you just couldn't stop anybody, you know? Yeah, I exactly. Mean, no, our, our defense was brutal, but we were putting up tons of points and we were, you know, coach whip was slinging it around the whole time. And, and you, and you, you know, we, uh, you know, we, we, like I said, beat BYU on the road, almost beat Tennessee, almost beat South Carolina, and I know almost doesn't amount for anything, but I, I think that there's a difference when, you know, you, you watch, you know, it, it was frustrating these past couple seasons to then watch UMass oh, yeah. get routed by, by Liberty by, by 60 points. I mean, it, you know, just things like that where we felt like we were turning the tide and that that place was on the way up, and it almost was becoming like a transfer destination, you know, yep. for guys. Like, we were bringing in a lot of transfers. We're pretty guys, good you know. kids, too. I mean – for sure, yeah, yeah, we we are. I mean, we had a great group of dudes, and I mean, I know if people remember that 2017 game. We played Hawaii at home to start the season, and we we should have beaten them. And I think that season, I think we go to a bowl that season if we win that game against Hawaii to start the season. Yeah, and I, I that was the first time I was like, we gotta, we gotta make. And as I'm just a fan here, but it's like we gotta maybe think about going moving on from Whip, not because he wasn't a good coach, but as a fan, you're like. How many three-point losses? I, I at a certain point, like I just and yes, I I recognize in retrospect that like if you had told me, okay, this guy Walt Bell, and I know you have ties to Walt, so we don't need to go down that path. But if you had told me, you know, what was coming next, sure, I would have kept Whipple. But at the same time, any program has to be aspirational, right? And at a certain point, as a fan, you're just like, I can't take an. I don't care if it's a forty-point loss or a three-point loss. I just you know, but yes, like hindsight is twenty twenty. You know, for sure. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> but also, right after that, Whipple did not have much. Like he had, he had pretty much tapped out the roster, and everybody was gone. Like, had he come back for nineteen twenty nineteen, um, there was nobody left on that roster. Yeah. 
No, it's, you know, yeah, like, it's, a, it's a fair point. They they didn't recruit high school kids at a at a very high level, you know, under Whipple, but we got some great transfers in, and yeah, no, it, it, I'm for sure. I mean, it 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 wasn't a great situation, um, you know, for anyone. I'm not, and I know Walt, you know, walked into a situation where the roster wasn't great and they didn't have offensive line was a problem. So I think there's there's a lot of a lot of you know things that were wrong, and and um, you know, I mean, I I am excited though. I'm excited about. Coach Brown, I think that um, I think he's a, a good, a perfect fit for kind of what UMass needs right now, and I'm excited to see the product on the field. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm hopeful, and I think that uh, that it's going to be, um, you know, I think it's going to be better than what we've seen. I'm excited to see a UMass team that plays good defense. I'm hopeful, hopeful that uh, hopeful that 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 happens, and it should based on Coach Brown's background. Um, but you know, no, I just I'm, think I think like Walt had a really tough job, and I also think when you UMass is a place where like First of all, we should note that they found another, you know, five to eight hundred, maybe maybe a million, maybe a million bucks for staff. And you, having been around, you know, power five position coach level, can you speak to? I, I've been just trying to make this point for a long time that finding that kind of money where you can get a guy an extra thirty, forty grand, and you're no longer going to lose an assistant. See, we lost assistants to like Bowling Green. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you might lose a guy to Penn State, right? If he's making 110 and they offer him 240, like, I get it. And that's always going to be the case. But speak to the role in which, like, a, a, a substantially uh, enhanced assistant pool can can help the continuity or culture of a program from a coaching perspective. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, that, that that's the, you know, and the money getting thrown around now at big-time college football to assistants is obviously keeps going up and up. Um, but, you know, I have – you know, I, I've had these discussions when I was an assistant at ASU and, and negotiating money with, you know, administration and our head coaches. And, you know, it, when, when you can, when you can get a guy, like you said, an extra 30, 40 grand, um, you know, you may not, you know, if, a, if an assistant's making, making, you know, one, one thirty as the tight ends coach at UMass, I'm not sure what they actually make with a say he's making that. And, you know, a, another school comes along and offers them one sixty you know, you're at least closer in that ballpark where it's not as easy of a decision to just get up and walk away um, or to have the ability to come back and match that um, because that happens all the time in, in college football now. Uh, but w- when you're at least, like, closer, instead of being at, like, 70, which is what UMass was for, you know, paying assistant coaches for yeah, a while. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, like, 70 to 160 versus, you know, places like a lot of the big-time group of fives. I mean, I don't, they probably have – every assistant they have is probably making over 150, I, I would guess. I mean, or at least over 100. So, you know, you're at least closer in that ball ballpark and when you can get guys. And, and, and it helps when, it, when you talk about developing talent, you talk about – recruiting and, and consistency, like keeping a staff together, which is extremely hard at God's football. But when you can at least keep some of your coordinators there and you keep the same system in place by being able to pay guys, I mean, it's huge. So I, I think that I think that was one of the big – you know, you asked me about the issues or the, the struggles that UMass had. Um, you know, that was one I didn't think of off the top of my head. But that was – I mean, we had – yeah, we had we had assistants that were making, you know, not much money for the time they're putting in and the level of football, big-time FBS football, and a level, you know, the highest division in, 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 in sports. I mean, you know, it's uh, – we had a system that weren't making much money because the salary pool wasn't very big. But, um, you know, I think that, that was a huge thing. I know, I know that, you know, Ryan Banford and those guys worked hard to raise some of that money and a lot of the other – you know, boosters and donors and things like that um, to, to raise some more money to get some good assistance in there. So, you know, hopefully that helps from a, just a continuity standpoint more than anything else.
Have you been uh, back to Amherst, or will you get back to Amherst, I guess, in, in the next year or two? Or I have not been back in a while, but I, I want to get back. I, I plan on trying to go back and see Coach Brown and those guys. Um, you know, I, I, I know Coach Brown a little bit just because he was so close with Coach Whipple. Um, so just kind of – I've been hearing Don Brown stories for a while, and then I think I, I met him a couple times. He had come to practice to see Coach Whip when I was up there. So, um, But, yeah, a, a lot of uh, – you know, a lot of a lot of people at UMass that you know, even on that, um, you know, on that staff now that I know. So um, I, I'm trying to get back up there sometime soon. I need to figure out when I can make it work, but I'll I'll definitely try to get to a game this fall and and check it out. I'm excited to I'm excited to see the uh, the new product. Do you maintain uh, close ties? I know you do like a Penn State podcast now, and feel free to hawk whatever you're you're doing, but. Uh, do you do you maintain close ties with a lot of your UMass ex UMass teammates? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, I know a lot of those guys. I mean, I'm in, I'm in uh, talking to those guys all the time. We got, we got a couple of group chats, a couple of fantasy football leagues going with all the, all the UMass guys. So, um, you know, that was a close group of guys. And even, you know, uh, you know, I mean, Andrew Ford was our quarterback, and he, he was my high school quarterback. You know, so, so we ended up going there together. And, um, you know, we talked about Brighton Barr. Brighton Barr was a friend of mine from high school, or from yeah, from growing up in high school, middle school. So was he, he at a rival, a rival high school? Yeah, he was at he was at Mechanicsburg, which is like a high school right down the road. So yeah, so Bright, I mean Brighton was a was at Towson. You know, it's a good again a good example of like evaluating talent and like you can't miss on kids, but when you when you can hit on kids, especially at the transfer level, like Brighton was a guy who went to Towson. Um, played there for like he was there for like four seasons, man. He has like, a wild story. He it's like he was injured, then he came back, then he yeah. was injured again. He played like four seasons there over like six years, and then he played like a seventh. Just so you know, he's become kind of still to this day a little bit of a meme on UMass Twitter just because he was so old when he played. And you probably it's a little bit before your time, but Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, uh, this old school TV show where there's like this Native American chief whose name I forget. Uh-huh. He looks exactly like Brighton Barr. Like I'm convinced, like. <laughs> Brighton Bar was like a Native American warrior in like 1740, um, and so we just keep that one going. So he's like one of the rare <laughs> names of like a non-All-American that just will not go away. So <laughs> I, oh. I sometimes wonder like if he sees his name on Twitter and is like, what the fuck? Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he sees something. Like that, but uh, <laughs> What is he up to? Because his father would always mix it up on Twitter. He was like, like I always get likes from like some realtor in central Pennsylvania. <laughs> What's going on? And I realized it was Brighton Bar's dad. I love it. Yeah, well, and, and you know, but I I remember when I just had gone to Coach Whip one day. We were like at, we were just hanging out at practice or something, and I went up to Coach Whip and I was like, Coach, we should take this linebacker from Towson that uh that uh that's one of my buddies from home. And Coach Whip's like. What do you mean? You know, and he's and I'm like I'm like, well, let's go watch his film. And then I had to tell Coach Whip he hadn't played in three years because he had a torn pack and then a torn ACL and then a, another torn ACL. And Coach Whip's like, well, put him on the phone. And then we got him on the phone. And Coach Whip loved him and and uh, and he brought me. So me and Andrew Ford knew Brighton really well. So Coach Whip brings Andrew and I in, and he's like, 
he's like, uh, you know, like, tell me about the kid. Like, do you vouch for him? And, and me and Andrew went in there and put our names on the line. We were like, I promise you he's going to be really good. And we brought him after not playing, you know, everyone at Towson was like, thought he was walking on at UMass to like, cause he's going up a level. And he's like, no, I got a full ride from him. <laughs> no, no one, no one believed it. And he ends up playing two years and having like a 300 some tackle or 250 tackles in two years at UMass. But, uh, but no, Brighton, uh, Brighton was out in Arizona doing, um, he was, he was with, uh, you know, Joe Conley was the UMass strength coach, and then he became the strength coach at Arizona State, which is how I got to Arizona State. And then Joe Conley brought Brighton to ASU as a as a strength in uh, like a assistant strength intern. Or strength oh, interesting! Coach. I didn't know that. Yeah, so that was kind of the connection to ASU. Now Brighton doesn't do that anymore, but he lives in he lives in Arizona. But uh, but yeah, we're always talking UMass football and always watching the games and trying to just hope we get a uh, you know hope we get some wins on the table, man. That anecdote about Whipple, though, strikes me as – and I, I never knew Whipple, actually. I, I never had any interactions with him. I got to know Walt a little bit. Um, that anecdote strikes me as illustrative of Whipple in that he was kind of like – he would he would take chances. Yeah, but at, oh, for sure. But, yeah. but at the same time, I didn't get the sense that his last go-round here, he was – let's just say I didn't get the sense he lived and died by recruiting. Like, he would he would – he wanted to scheme, and he was very good at that. I did not get the sense that, like, he wanted to watch high school tape till 2 in the morning, like, a, you know, a 30-something. Is that is that a false read, or is, you know, am I sort of on to something? Yeah, no, I think I – think, I mean, I think it's fair. I, I think most coaches don't really want to do recruiting, but they realize it's part of the job. Um, you know, and, again, you got the challenges of recruiting to UMass, which isn't the easiest in the world. Coach Whip would always say, like, we don't – we can't – you know, getting in on a player early is tough because – then they blow up, you know, by the time signing day comes and you just wasted a year and a half recruiting the kid when he just goes to, you know, he just ends up going to Boston College or something like that. So you kind of got to wait till the end to figure out who's even out there that's available. So, you know, it, it, it is tough. But, yeah, Coach Whip kind of found a niche in that in that transfer, you know, area and, and bringing in some guys that way. But, um, no, you're, you're telling me, right? I mean, Coach Whip took a lot of chances on guys and believed in players. I mean, took a chance on me. I, I, I was retired from football when Coach Whip took me at UMass. Yeah, talk about, talk about how you ended up at UMass because I, I, I don't remember all of the, the circumstances. I, I remember Andrew was here before you got here, right? Yeah, I believe he had just gotten there. Um, like, he got there in, like, the spring and was there during, you know, during all that. And then uh, – and then – I then showed up um, in the in the summer. It was like summer of 2016. Uh, I, I I was at Penn State for three years. My first year at Penn State went really well. I was a freshman All-American. Then I had my knee injury. It missed two seasons in a row. It was bad. Um, and at that point, I had like I got my degree quick from Penn State because I was hurt and taking all these summer classes. And when I got my degree, I was like, screw this. I'm done playing football. And then, um, you know, like a few months later, my knee was feeling better. And, you know, Coach Whipple's son, Austin, was my roommate at Penn State. So that's, that was my connection to Coach Whipple. He was the um, walk-on, right? He was the walk-on, Austin Whipple, yep. So he was uh, he was my roommate at Penn State. So, you know, Coach Whip, I had gotten to know Coach Whip through that. But at that time, he was like, you know, he was an assistant in the NFL. He had just taken a year off, I think, from coaching. And then, um, you know, and then – so was he around? Like, would he show up to state college for games and stuff? Yeah, a little bit. Well, Bill O'Brien was that coach, and, and and Coach Whipple knew Bill O'Brien really well, so he'd be around. I mean, I didn't know him like super well, but um, you know, when I started like thinking about transferring, I, Austin Whipple, his son, would always like say to me, "Dude, like, come play for my dad. Like, he'll throw you the ball a million times. Like, 
all this stuff. But, you know, especially when I was hurt at Penn State, they were like, yeah, we'll work with you. You, you know, you don't got to practice, like all this stuff. You know, we'll do, we'll, <laughs> this is the place you got to go. So when I started thinking about coming back, I remember I called Austin Whipple, Coach Whipple's son, and I was like, dude, I, I'm going to come out. Or I'm going to – I want to come to UMass. And he's like – he thought I was lying. Like, he's, he's like, dude, you've been saying that you're going to come to UMass for, like, months now. You haven't come. And uh, I was like, no, man, like, I'm dead serious. Well, then – he has me then. He's like, well, call my brother. Well, also his older brother, Spencer, was a, was a, an assistant coach at UMass under his dad. So I called Spencer, told him. He's like, well, let me talk to my dad. I got a call from Coach Whipple then, like, right after. And he's like, listen, like, we'll take you. Like, if you want to come here, let's come to, come to UMass. And he's like, come for a visit this weekend. So I went up in, like, middle of July on a visit, um, met with all the coaches, met with Coach Whipple, and then was like, yeah, I'm coming. So then I just went to UMass for that 2016 season after I, I, I hadn't worked out in, like, four months. Um, no, I was, I was thought I was done playing. And, uh, so did they yeah, work you out? Like when you come to campus in July, did you do anything? Physical? No, 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 didn't do anything. No, they didn't even check me out. They just, I just told Coach Whip I was good and, and he took me. So <laughs> ended up, ended up working out, but, uh, but. So uh, then did you, was it, was it grueling getting back in shape that summer? Yeah, I wasn't in great shape to be honest with you. I, I wasn't even, I wasn't in great shape for the whole season, that 2016 season, um, but we made it work. I mean, you know, Joe Conley did a good job, and and you know, my knee felt pretty good that year. And then the 2017 season, my that's when my knee kind of started to fall apart a little bit. Um, but uh, but no, it was it was uh, you know, they, they were good. Coach Whip was good about like you know, I was kind of I was on the veteran program, you know, like practicing two days a week. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, he was good about that. So uh, they they were good with with working with me, and yeah, I mean, it was it was fun. I mean, play, I learned a ton playing for coach whip and and we're so close you know to this day i talk to him i talk to him all the time he's he's uh he's at nebraska now as the oc so yeah he just signed a kid from springfield central that's a really hard job to walk into because their head coach is about to get canned if they don't win a lot of games for sure yeah a lot lot of pressure on him right now like he might get canned like six games in like i just don't it's a great i I was surprised i mean i know he got paid but i like he literally led the you know one of the most unbelievable seasons at Pitt maybe ever for them uh, I was just surprised, to, and he's from that area. Were you surprised to see him go to Nebraska? I was. I mean, I, yeah, like I said, I, I thought, or like uh, like you said, I thought that he'd be a pit for a while. Um, but obviously, I don't know the details of what happened there or what the – if they were I – don't, I, I don't know what, what went on, but I um, – yeah, I just, he just called me one day. He's like, yeah, I'm going to Nebraska. I was like, what, Nebraska? You know, it seems like a kind of a random place, but I guess he had a connection somehow to Scott Frost. And well, I uh, think they, I heard they paid him like a million bucks, like just insane. For money. sure, yeah, Double yeah, yeah. I mean, all that that coordinator money now is is uh, the Big Ten money is is a little different than uh, than Pitt is, but um, but yeah, you know, he's, so, uh, so when, you, like, when Whipple calls you, is it just to bullshit and catch up, or is it are you talking business? Uh, it depends. I mean, he, he's, I mean, usually just catching up, but you know, he was helpful to me during my, you know, when I was coaching and stuff, he was, he was helpful. Even, you know, I, I was interviewing for tight ends jobs places. He was helpful when getting prepared for that and just running things by him. Um, you know, a, a lot of his stuff, even that, that he taught me when I was playing for him, I used as a, you know, when I was coaching, whether it's game plan stuff or things like that. So yeah, he's been, He's been really. I mean, obviously, like his family's you know, been a big part of my life for a while. With his son being one of my best friends, and um, you know, it's just it, it's just crazy. Like going back to like just thinking, you know, it's all about relationships, right? Like I probably would have never even came out of retirement if it wasn't, or you know, would have never ended up playing, you know, my final couple of seasons of college football if, 
if it wasn't for, you know, having met Coach Whipple before and his sons calling me, telling me to, to come transfer. Um, you know, just a good example and just keeping relationships fresh and, and uh, you never know what can happen because, you know, again, if I'm a random guy that Coach Whipple doesn't know, he's probably not taking a chance on a guy that just retired from football. Um, did, or, or, did Whipple, just, sorry, did Whipple ever yeah. tell you the story about, speaking of um, of tight ends and unusual circumstances, did he ever tell you the story about Gene Sifrin, who was there before you? Yeah, I mean, I know I'm not sure what specific story, but I know about Gene, and I, I watched a lot of his film and stuff when I was when I was coming to you know when I was coming to UMass. That was kind of they showed me a lot of his stuff and how they used him. And apparently, he was just a, a freaking ball of talent that never really got tapped. Yeah, I mean, it's just the most wild. That that to me, in all my years watching UMass sports, might be the craziest recruitment story. Like, if there's anything you can make a movie out of. This kid was basically like 27 years old when he played his first yeah. down of FBS football. Hadn't even really practiced, like got there, you know, they like hadn't even know the playbook. And UMass was probably, I don't know, three, or three, three and a half touchdown underdog to um, Colorado in like the second game of the season. And this kid came out of nowhere, didn't even know the playbook. He was like 6'6", six, six, like 250, and probably ran like a 4'7", like just insane yeah. athlete. Caught, like, three touchdowns, had, like, a one-handed over-the-head grab. They lost, like, 41-38. And, and then he ultimately, because he was so old, he tried to go to the NFL after one season and, and didn't make it. And it was, But it was, just, it was just fascinating, like, that both you and him, very different circumstances, but he, Whipple found basically tight ends that, you know, were kind of, like, out of football and made and made them both you know do you, do you attribute that to his to his you know like creativity like what what, what that's a, that's a unique thing that it would happen twice yeah no i think uh i mean yeah, his system is very favorable to a tight end he's also really good that's like the thing i think coach Ripple's best at is like utilizing his personnel and finding ways to get guys the ball um he does that as well as anyone you look at me you look at Andy Isabella having 100 freaking catches in one season um you know he, he just he just finds ways to get guys the ball when he knows they're talented so i think that's a that's a big you know a big part of why he's so successful as an oc you look at you know at Pitt last year with jordan addison he got jordan addison 100 some touches you know so yeah i think that, that that's definitely what he's uh what he's good at and it, i definitely i definitely was a product of the system when i was at umass uh you know not necessarily i wasn't necessarily the best tight end in the country or had the most had the you know the best athletic ability or anything like that i just I was, you know, I was willing to learn from Coach Whip and played in a system that allowed me to touch the ball a lot of times. Well, I mean, and, and a lot of guys, it feels like, you know, what I what I always respected about Whip, and I had some issues with his offense too, but what I always respected about him is, like you said, he, he wasn't, there was no, I mean, he would try things, you know. He would, he was never, he was never, sometimes it was things I disagreed with, but he, he, he was willing to mix it up a little, and I feel like that's, you know, you, you can speak to your industry far better than I can, but I feel like there's a lot of very risk-averse guys around college football who kind of just go with the flow and do what everybody else is doing, whereas Whipple um, was pretty original in that sense. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, football is such a copycat league. You know, it's, it's everyone's copying each other's plays. It's amazing. You see, like, 
you'll see one NFL team run like a really cool trick play or a really cool formation uh, on Sunday, and then you watch football the next Saturday and Sunday a week later, and like seven teams run the same play <laughs> that everyone ran the week that they ran the week week before. So uh, it's a copycat league, but Coach Whipple did a good job. I think when you're around for a while too, like he's been, I mean, he's been, you know, he's he's coached a lot of ball that you you, you kind of have an identity and like what you like to do so you don't really transform with everyone else so when everyone's you know doing different things you kind of have your identity that you like and and then being willing to you know mold your offense around your players is what I think a lot of you know you see a lot of times coaches struggle with that because they have an offense the way they want to do it but Coach Ripple would be willing to you know if he had a really if he had if he had one of the best running backs in the country I'll promise you Coach Whipple would be running the ball a whole lot more than he was when I was playing for him you know so uh I think that that's that, that's you know what makes you know him a really good play caller. I was gonna say who who are the running? When I think back to those teams, it was like you, Ford, Isabella, Tajay. You you didn't did you play with Tajay or was he right before? No, he he, he was older than me. Uh, I played with like Marquise Young was a running back. Okay, Marquise Young was a good running back. Yeah, he was a good player. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess that was kind of the only back that got meaningful touches, if I recall right. Yeah, we yeah we I mean we certainly didn't run the ball a whole lot. <laughs> All right, well, you've given us a lot of time. We talked a lot of NIL. We didn't settle any, any, you know, we didn't solve all the problems, but we, we hashed them out. Um, and, uh, you know, if there's anything you want to tout before you go, now's your, now's your chance. Uh, this will go up as a podcast, too. So, um, but if there's anything you want to promote or whatever, we, we, we got some people who will, well, quite a few who will listen to it there. So if there's anything you want to push now yeah. or talk about. No man, I appreciate I appreciate the uh, the time. This was fun to be on. Um, yeah, if anyone wants to tune in to, to my podcast, you can find it on YouTube or Apple or Spotify. It's called Brennan shows up, just basically interviewing some some big time athletes, kind of similar to this uh, to this conversation. Um, but yeah, no, I appreciate you uh, you having me on, and and we'll have to do this again when we see how uh, how UMass football turns out this fall. Yeah, no, we would love to have you back after after a couple. Um after a couple games and uh, I really appreciate you giving so much time. I was going to probably bust your balls a little more on some of your past political exploits. My, the sponsor of my show, um, I, I uh, wanted me to, and I was just like, we can do that another time. What are you doing? You're doing real estate now. What are you up to now? Uh, I do a bunch of stuff, mostly some media stuff. I do some real estate investing stuff uh, that I've done actually for a while, not just more on the side. But, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm I'm living in Arizona right now still. I've been out here for like three years, but probably will make my way back to the East Coast here pretty soon. Well, all my family's in Pennsylvania, so they're uh, they're begging me to come back. So, do you want? Um, is your brother still at Colgate? He he graduated, so he is uh he's got a job. He moves to New York City in a couple of weeks. So uh, well, I live yeah, in New York. So tell, you know, if he ever wants to, I don't I don't know what I can do for him. But where's he? <laughs> <laughs> um, so he's done with his. He just finished. Yeah, yeah, he graduated. Yeah, he finished this past season. Was his last year. So he had a good good career there. All right. Well, um, are you? Do you want to get back into coaching or no? I, I I'm definitely open to it. I think it just kind of depends on what the situation is and um um. You know, I I talked a little bit about actually with Coach uh, Coach Brown and and Ryan Banford and those guys this past off season, but um, it didn't really lead to anything on both sides. But um, but yeah, I mean, I think I'm definitely open to it. I love football. I love kind of doing the media stuff I'm doing right now, just kind of talking ball and analyzing it. And 
um, you know, just kind of staying open to whatever kind of uh, whatever comes down the line. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoy coaching for sure. Obviously, the 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 situation I was in the middle of wasn't wasn't uh, wasn't the greatest, but uh, but I love my time, you know, at Arizona State and love love being part of the game. Yeah, that's that's uh, you guys can Google it uh, for for whatever I've ever held against Adam Brenneman, I would never hold that against him because that sounds like a nightmare. Um, <laughs> you don't need to comment, but uh, I, is Herm Edwards still the coach? He is. Yep. Got it. So uh, others others doing doing the time, I guess. <laughs> um, anyway. <laughs> you might want to log off before before I get you in trouble. Um, <laughs> but, but thanks for coming on. I'm gonna I'm gonna segue and talk about you know uh, some some other UMass news from the week. Cool. And uh, we'll throw this up soon. So thank you again for for showing up. I appreciate, it, man. Thanks for having me. All right, take care. Yeah. Um. So Adam Brenneman calling it quits on the spaces. I, it's really funny because, um. You know, there's a couple of things I want to say about that interview. I it, 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 look like Adam ran a campaign when he was like 21, 22 for a guy who later went on to um, vote. Like he was he he basically voted to to not certify the election results in Pennsylvania, I believe. And so there was a dust-up on Twitter for some time. Not, not just like a little thing on UMass Twitter at some point about, you know, Adam's relationship with that guy. And, you know, actually, Pat from Five College Movers wanted me to bring it up. So did some others. And I'll be honest, you can, you can say, I, you know, I kind of chickened out or whatever. But I just didn't – the flow of the conversation was – first of all, it's hard to – it's hard to – ascribe uh, a politician, and I want to be very clear that anybody who had any peripheral association with, like, the events of January 6th, like, I find grotesque um, and beyond the pale, but I also know that life is complicated, and people support candidates or work for candidates that end up doing things that you wouldn't necessarily um, sanction. And I also know that we were having a really good fucking conversation about things not related to any of that. And to abruptly flip the script and go there, I just, I it, it didn't, I didn't, you know, I'm, I'm a feel guy. I go, I go by, by the vibe and I just, it just wasn't going there. Um, I've, I've called him out on some of this on Twitter. So it's like, you know, it's, it's, you know, so if I, if I was inadequate about that, then, you know, my apologies. Um, secondly, what was I going to say? Um, shit, I don't remember. Um, but I thought it was a really good interview. The NIL stuff was tricky because, truthfully, I don't really think our positions are that far apart. And I think he was, you know, and I could have been even more explicit in bringing this out. He was quibbling a little bit with kind of um, – you know, the, the, the role of, of coaches being, you know, undermined in this process. I felt like that was his real issue, and this kind of talk of pay-for-play versus NIL was a little bit, uh, you know, sort of 
a distraction from that main point because and feel free for anyone to jump in now and, and you know like let me know your takes on it because I'm, I'm just doing a debrief here but I just thought you know what he really wants like let's just be clear you can google what happened he got caught up in some bullshit at Arizona State that I'm sure he had to take the fall for he and some other guys about you know recruiting visits like just these petty violations that the NCAA will go after and Herm Edwards is not going to take the fall on that. I'm sure he knew exactly what was going on. And it's like, for whatever political differences I've had with Adam Brenneman, like I will never hold that against him because it's nonsense. But having been a, uh, you know, uh, embroiled in some of that, I'm sure he has, and it was clear from our conversation, he has, um, you know, issues with kind of the ambiguity surrounding recruiting these days and, and boosters and rules. And, and that's a really hard spot to be in it, it, you know, and, and that's why coaches I think are freaking out. And I think some of his having just been a coach, you know, and ascending very at a very young age and was like a real hotshot recruiter. Um, I think some of that was probably top of mind. And I think you alluded to it a little bit, but you know, when he's speaking about NIL stuff, you know, he's sort of now doing it in the voice of a commentator. But, you know, I'm sure that a lot of that is stemming from his experience as a coach who just got caught up in like a nonsensical quote-unquote scandal and having to, you know, be a fall guy for a couple of years and be out of this sport. Like, that's that sucks. And yet, none of that convinced me that the answer here is to just let coaches have a pool of money that they divvy up in, in NIL deals. I still like the idea of a little bit as a fan of this kind of wild West universe. And I don't speak as a coach. Like I empathize with that. I can understand like, that's not a fun spot to be in, but by the same token, like I, I, I want to empower the players. I want to allow them to get that money. And I don't really care if it's, you know, all these sort of, these kind of legalist, legalistic quibbling over, you know, if it's pay-to-play or NIL. It's like, it's all pay-to-play. I mean, <laughs> whether there's a market value, no, who cares? If someone's willing to pay you, go get paid, kid. You know, now, that leads to problems. It leads to chaotic Wild West environment for, for certain recruits as they, you know, figure out where to go. But I also think, I, I wish I had said this because I'm, I'm it's kind of coming to me now, Anytime there are changes, wholesale massive changes to any sort of like regulatory environment, when there's new rules, it's really confusing. There's a whole lot of shit that happens and no one really knows what's going on. And it's chaotic. And it's, you know, I mean, you just look at uh, marijuana legalization in, in a lot of states. Like, Who's going to regulate it? Where's it going to come from? The feds aren't in, in yet. So what do we do? We got to make it in cash. It's not we. There's all these rules, and you know, eventually, you know, you hope that cooler heads prevail. You work out an apparatus that was, you know, that's going to be imperfect, but it's better than it was before, and it holds true to the general principle that, you know, if kids generate revenue, they should see some of that for themselves. And, you know, we'll see where it goes. And I think Adam and I agree that right now it's really chaotic. But to me, like, 
you can't just hastily act and restrict the kids from getting like the the general principle has to be if the kid's going to get paid, the kid's going to get paid. And it's unfair to – because remember, you're dealing with kids who, if they aren't going to go to the NFL, you know, if they can get a $100,000 payday, that's real money. And if you come from, you know, poverty and you invest that right, you know, I mean, like, who am I to stop a kid from getting that? <laughs>